I will never forget the day. Broken glass. To some, it is junk. <laughs> I will never forget the day 14 years ago when I had to physically restrain a woman in our church to prevent her from viciously attacking her husband in my home after he had confessed to having an affair. Part of the problem was that she had found out by seeing a text message he was trying to hide from her and was caught red-handed. But instead of telling her the whole truth, instead of being unflinchingly honest about all the things he had done, he would only tell her the parts of the story he thought he could no longer cover up. And so over the course of several days and weeks, more pieces of the story kept coming out. He was trying to hide his sin. He was ashamed. Over the course of the next several weeks, she would uncover more of the story, and he would confess. I, I know in my heart, he really truly was convicted of his sin, that God really had gotten a hold of him and, and convinced him that what he had done was wrong, and, and that he really had truly in his heart surrendered to God for the very first time in his life. I baptized this man. And as the Holy Spirit was working in his heart, it would bring to mind the wrong stuff he had done. And out of a desire to find wholeness, he would confess. And this just kept going on for weeks. It prolonged his wife's pain until it boiled over in a counseling session in my basement. I said, Larry, that's not his real name. I said, the Lord has given you another chance. And your wife is giving you another chance. She's going to have the fight of her life to forgive you, but you got to come out with it, all of it, right now. I said, even if you're not sure whether you did something or not, just confess to that too. If you want forgiveness from your wife, you've got to take ownership of that sin and fess up right now. And he did. He listed everything he had done in this affair. That was quite a list for a 28-year-old church planter. That was probably my first time encountering that level of brokenness and depravity. And Sherry, that's not her real name, was doing okay. She knew about most of it. Until he got to one word on that list. And I, he used one word. I'll not repeat it here. It's not a swear word. It's just gross. And she lost it. She, this is all totally true. She said, you what? And stood up out of her chair and began to throw punches and kicks that would have intimidated Chuck Norris. She went after him. I didn't know what to do. I'd never encountered this. I didn't, what do you do? I was bigger than her, so I just stood up and just grabbed her and picked her up off the ground. I didn't know what to do. This is a woman from Montana. That was dumb. I didn't know. <laughs> she was probably packing. I, you know, um... Larry just sat there, 
head hung in shame. He knew that I was preventing him from getting a beating that he deserved. His corruption had been exposed. He was ashamed. When you've cheated, when you've lied, when you've used the influence that you have to bring someone else to harm, how do you repent from that? I will tell you. You run into the arms of the only one who is truth. You run into the arms of the only one who is just. Here's the big idea this morning. To repent of deception or corruption, we must love the whole truth in Jesus. I want to thank you for being here today. We're, we're continuing our sermon series on the doctrine of repentance called Stained Glass. We're looking at, at it through the lens of the four cardinal virtues. Over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about how God uh, uses um, our brokenness to create wisdom in our life and how God uses our brokenness to create um, you know, temperance in our life. Today, we're talking about how God uses our brokenness to create um, justice in our lives. If you're new here today at Chapel Rock, I'd love to meet you when we're done. I'll be down front. Please come say hi. If you're joining us online, thanks for logging in. Take a second, fill out that online connection card. Just click up here and, uh, and find that. If you're here in the room, if you haven't filled that out yet, please take a moment and do that. Just leave that in the seat next to you. Our ushers will collect that later. Um, here's my assertion this morning. God can create the beauty of justice in our lives when we repent of the brokenness of our corruption. We're going to drill down on that idea today, but before we get into the text, I want to make sure that we're all working from the same set of definitions. Um, this is the, the curse of post-modernity, is that we have to define every word we use. Uh, so, uh, this is in the Bible, when we talk about corruption, here's what it means. In the Bible, corruption is a decay into something rotten or a deterioration of something that was once righteous or whole. That's what, in the Bible, that's what the word corruption means. And, and it's most often, in Scripture, applied to two things. It's most often applied to the idea of telling the truth or the idea of the abuse of power. Those are the two places in the Bible where it's mo that word corruption is most often applied. That the truth has been corrupted and now we're dealing with lies. Or that power has been corrupted and now we're talking about someone who's using their power, using their influence to hurt somebody else. To allow someone else to come to harm. Okay, so that's, that's where we see, the, and, and we're going to kind of bounce back and forth between those two ideas this morning. The idea that corruption is an abuse of the truth or an abuse of power. All right? So that's what the word means in Scripture. Now let's talk about this word justice. In the Bible, justice is a redress of wrongs or a restoration of brokenness based on God's objective standard of right and wrong. It's, it's fixing wrongs or restoring broken things based on God's standard of what's right and wrong. And that standard is completely objective. Okay? In the Bible, righteousness and justice are closely connected ideas. that You, you find them together over and over and over again. Now, we, we tend to use the word justice to mean what's fair. Right? I want justice. 
That's not really how the Bible uses the word. I mean, that's part of it. That's part of it. But in Scripture, especially the Old Testament, the idea of justice is really related to what's right. What's right, regardless of whether or not it's fair. Here's what Moses says about God in his farewell song to Israel. Look at this. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. This is Moses speaking, talking to Israel. This is kind of right before he's about to die. It says, he, God, is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. Now remember, he's saying this to them right after they spent 40 years in the wilderness. God does no wrong. He is just. You see the connection there? That justice is related to the righteousness of God. In the Bible, God is shown to be just. That means that what God does is always right, even if it doesn't strike us as fair. And sometimes that can be a bitter pill to swallow. Justice has more to do with doing what is right. It won't always necessarily seem fair. And I will tell you that this offends me. I'm a firstborn. (laughs) I have a real strong sense of fair. But how come they got to go on that trip? I didn't get to go. Well, we got more money now than we did when you were little. Sorry. It's... (laughs) You you think I'm kidding. That conversation happened. Um... God does what's right, even if it doesn't strike us as fair. And this is a good thing for two reasons. First of all, this harmonizes the idea that God is just, that he punishes evil or evildoers for their wickedness, and that God is merciful, that he forgives us and he restores our brokenness. It brings those two ideas together, that God does what is right, even if it always doesn't seem fair, okay? The second reason is that... (laughs) Is this. Trust me, in the final judgment, on judgment day, great white throne, all the dead of the earth are assembled before the throne of God. You do not want him to be fair. Fair sends us all to hell. You want him to do what's right. And God has said that it is right that he allowed his son Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could find forgiveness in him and not have to suffer for our wrongs. In God's mind, that's not fair, but it's right. Somebody say amen. Thank you. And that's why we have an ongoing need to repent of our corruption. Jesus has forgiven our sin. That puts us in a right relationship with God. But we continue to need repentance because of our ongoing dishonesty and because we allow others to come to harm in order to advance our own cause, what the Bible calls corruption. And when we repent of our corruption, God takes our brokenness and he creates beauty in our culture and he creates beauty in our relationships. And so what I want to do today is take a more detailed look at each one of those. First of all, when we see that when we repent of corruption, we get to experience the beauty of just systems. The beauty of just systems. Remember, in the Bible, justice isn't always what's fair, it's what's right. And the best place to see this is in the Old Testament prophets. Their job was to call a corrupt people back to their covenant with God. 
Now remember, corruption equals either abuse of power or abuse of the truth. And so what I, I want to show you what three prophets, Isaiah and Amos and Micah, had to say about this. We're going to look at three scriptures in, in, in succession here. Look at this with me. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 16 says this, wash and make yourselves clean. It's repentance language. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Look at this. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And you probably heard that verse a bunch, but did you understand that it comes in the context of repenting from corruption to find justice? We're real big on, oh yeah, I want God to wash my sins, all right? The sins that were like scarlet, I want them to be white. Yeah, cool. But the context of that is going, no, no, no. This is, not, this is about more than just you and your relationship with God. This is about a societal shift. This is about all of society experiencing that. All of our culture. Then look at Amos chapter 5, verse 15. Look at what God says here through the prophet Amos. He was a farmer. God called him to be a prophet. Hate evil. Love good. Man, <laughs> there's a bumper sticker for you. Everybody slap that on your car. Hate evil. Love good. Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. And then in Micah 6, 8, you've maybe seen this. This has become quite popular to find on posters. I believe it's in one of our restrooms here. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Clearly, God wants his people to contend for justice, what is truly right in our culture. Now, these passages are about Israel's national life. They're not temple passages. This is not about the worship in the temple. This is about their corporate national life together as the people of God. He's telling his people, I want you to contend for justice in the social arena, not just in your own personal life. This is applied to be applied much more broadly. And one key insight from studying God's command to his people to practice justice is that what drives corruption is the belief that God does not see and won't punish the evil in our culture. What really drives corruption is when people go, well, God doesn't really know. He doesn't really see it. Well, he does. He's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to eternal life, the scripture says. But he sees it. In fact, a pretty basic review of Israel's history will tell you that God loves justice so much, he's more than willing to punish corruption, even in his own people. He did it repeatedly through Israel's history. I believe he's still doing it in the world today. And that's why we need Jesus so much. Jesus is the expression of God's justice. You just read about it earlier when we read that passage from Matthew 12. That's, that's the fulfillment of a passage for Isaiah, in Isaiah 42, verse 1 through 4, that Jesus, he fulfilled that prophecy in Isaiah 42 because he's God's perfect expression of justice because Jesus always did what's right. He was repeatedly asked to make difficult judgments. Oftentimes it was a trap. And every time he did it, he answered correctly. Now, here's the question. Why would he even bother 
He's the Lord of the universe. He spoke everything that exists into being. Like, like why does he have to put up with that junk from us? Someone comes up to him and asks him this hard question. I'm going to trap Jesus. <laughs> you know, like, when you're in that place, you'd think he could just go, ah, it's not worth my time. Remember the old joke back in the heydays of Microsoft in the late 90s, you know, the, the joke was, if, you know, um, Bill Gates saw a stack of $100 bills laying on the ground. It's not worth his time to bend over and pick it up. He makes more money, just keep walking. It's almost like that. It's like, Jesus, why even bother with this? And I will tell you why. Because Jesus is passionate about justice. He wants us to have a just society. Now, there are many people in our society who think that the only way for there to be justice is for those who have power, especially if they've abused it, to have it forcibly stripped from them and given to those who have none and no experience with it. And that sounds fair. And I'll be willing to admit that sometimes it is. But that's not the biblical idea of justice. Let me tell you what it is. The biblical idea of justice is for those in power to have such a high moral code that it causes them to speak truly and use their power proactively to improve the lives of those who have no power. That's what justice is in the Bible. True justice, from looking at the whole canon of Scripture, it's for those who have power to have a high moral code and to live in such a way that they improve the lives of everyone around them, especially those who are weak and have no power, widows, orphans, refugees, the like. That's the beauty of a just system. And it does two things. First of all, it relieves the burdens of, of the, the poor and oppressed through the willing sacrifice, not state-directed, willing sacrifice of the wealthy and powerful, but it also preserves the freedom of the individual to be accountable to God for his or her own actions. It's Honestly, it's what we're trying to do in our care ministry. Many of you uh, hopefully have heard about this, that when, when people come to the church out of the community for help, they sit down with someone and, and someone just kind of does a diagnostic listen. Okay, what's the problem? What's going on? Why, why do you need help? And they just listen to them pour out their story and then they pray with them. And then they hand them over to someone who's uh, you know, going to help them through, talk through the financial aspect of it. And okay, here's, here's what this looks like. And have you thought about this and Dave Ramsey and I mean all that stuff, right? They're just the nuts and bolts practical things. And then they pray with them. And then they hand them off to the pastor of the day who just kind of listens to where they are spiritually and, 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 and talks them through that, that process. And then they pray with them. And people walk out of here and even if we don't give them a dime, they, they know that they're loved. It's well, what we're trying to do, help people find wholeness, <laughs> Listen, here's what I'm telling you, okay? Biblical justice is greater than social justice. You know why? Because biblical justice makes an appeal to God's perfect, objective, unchanging perspective of right and wrong. Social justice depends on what? The society's perspective of right and wrong. Forgive me if I don't trust them especially in comparison to God. That, it changes, right? I mean, nobody in here is like six. You've, you've seen this, it, it was wrong, and oh, now it's okay. You want me to start picking examples? Ooh, get uncomfortable now. Here's the thing, social justice is not bad. In fact, the term was invented by a Jesuit priest. 
over 150 years ago. And when he meant it, oh, that's, the, way he, the way he meant the term is really appealing more to the biblical idea. But the, the meaning of the word has shifted over time. And what I'm telling you today is that it, when we, we need to have a, the beauty of a just system to appeal to who God is. <laughs> so what happens when the people of God get serious about repenting of the corruption in our lives, when we abuse the truth or we abuse power? When that happens, our culture becomes a more just society. But it's not the justice of society, it's the justice of the Lord. So what does that process look like? Glad you asked. Let's apply these three steps of repentance in our culture, right? Here's the first one. So you, you got the step of owning it. You have to confront injustice in society. To, to really own up to, to own up to it and go, this is wrong. This shouldn't happen. Someone is being treated unjustly. And notice I did not say unfairly. Because we're appealing to God's standards, not society's. God's don't change. Societies do. Someone is treating, being treated unjust. You've got you to confront that in society. And so here's this process of contrition. This, these, this concrete step of repentance then means that you need to stand in solidarity with the oppressed. That's the second step. You need to stand in solidarity with the oppressed. You know, to, to, be, to be silent, to just go, I don't know, uh, I don't understand this. I'm just not going to say anything. No. When someone is being oppressed, when you see someone in our society abusing their power or abusing the truth, you need to stand with the oppressed. Jesus did. You should too. And then the, the beautiful thing about this, where we experience mercy, which makes us hunger for God more, is that you need to rejoice when justice is done. It's wonderful. It's beautiful when you go, oh, yes, justice. Notice I did not say retribution. Those are not the same. Justice. And when those things happen, when, when we as a church begin to do this, and if it filters out into the broader culture, and they begin to do this, then we get to experience the beauty of just systems. But that's not all. We also get to experience the beauty of loving authenticity. That's the other part of repenting from corruption and finding justice, God building justice in our life. Now, let me be clear. When I say loving authenticity, I'm not talking about being in love with being authentic. Okay? I'm talking about expressing ourselves in a way that is both loving and authentic in our relationships. You know, you may have met people who were real authentic, you know, in, in their relationships, but when they were being real, they were just big jerks. I don't think that's what Jesus would have us do. The church in Corinth was trying to live out the life of Jesus in a culture that was literally the most corrupt city in the ancient world. The city of Corinth had a reputation for corruption. Like moral corruption, social corruption, everything. They were just corrupt. In fact, when someone would embrace corruption and evil in their life as you're being Corinthian, it was literally, the name of the town was a byword for corruption. And so they, these people had an uphill battle to be sure, and it was affecting their relationships. The church knew all about a horrifically corrupt situation. There was a man in the congregation who was having an intimate affair with his mother, maybe his stepmother. The church was not speaking the truth in love to this guy. They just tolerated it. Kind of makes me wonder if he had money or power. And so Paul writes him a letter. We don't have that one. As far as we know, some scholars think it might have been 1 Corinthians, that that's the letter that he's going to talk about. 
I, I don't know. I think it was, it was a shorter letter. It was specifically addressing that situation. It was called, Paul talks about it as a letter of tears. And he just, lets, he just lays into this guy, lets him have it. And I don't know that we necessarily have that one. Um, that there's probably a personal letter, not inspired scripture, that Paul wrote to this church in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, okay? That's the letter he's going to refer to, I think, in this text. So turn to 2nd Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. That's where we're going to go next. Paul writes this letter, whatever it was. It might have been 1st Corinthians. I kind of have my doubts. And whatever it was, they repented. And then later, Paul writes them again in 2 Corinthians, so it's either his second letter, more probably his third letter uh, to the church, and he says this, look at this, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 8, he said, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. He's saying, I don't regret it now. (laughs) Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Look at what he says here. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Oh, my. Don't raise your hands. How many of you struggle with regret? Over doing something you did wrong. True repentance, true godly sorrow will lead you to a place where you don't regret anymore because you've let go of it. You're done with it. Man, if there's, I can't, you want a reason to repent? There's one. It says it leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Look at this. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness. What earnestness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, get this, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Listen, there's something I don't want you to miss in verse 10. In this verse, Paul transitions from this specific situation to the general principle. I'm assuming... (laughs) Please, I'm assuming that none of you are in the same situation as what occasioned Paul to write that letter of tears. Like, if you are, we need to talk, okay? Maybe now you know why I started the message the way I did. See, this helps us apply the principle to our own lives. It shows us how God creates the beauty of loving authenticity in our relationships when we bring our brokenness, whatever it is, to him. When we go, here are the places in my life that are corrupt. Here are the places where I've abused my power, my influence, my ability in order to to either bring harm to others or allow harm to come to them. Here are the places where I've abused the truth and not told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And because of that, harm was done. And when you bring that to Jesus, you get to experience the beauty of loving authenticity. That someone is loving and they're real with you. And after that confrontation, look at what happens. We long for, we yearn for, we're ready for for what? For justice to be done. We're hungry for what's right. Let me tell you about the day I learned this for the first time. I was a freshman at Ozark Christian College, second week of school. One of the guys, I'm pretty sure a youth ministry major, had gotten a hold of one of those three-person water balloon launchers. You ever seen those things? Like this? 
It's, it uses surgical tubing and a little pouch to like ballistically launch water balloons. They're awesome. Um, one of the guys got, and we were playing with it, you know, and my dorm was the dorm up on top of the hill and the other two men's dorms were down at the bottom of the hill. And so we were shooting water balloons on the roof and it would make this really cool kind of thump splash, thump splash when it would hit the roof of these dorms. It was cool. And then it was Ryan Crobb's term. I'm going to name him. Um, you don't know him. Uh, he grabbed it, and you can see how the guy is, is kneeling down. We would go like straight down like this, and it went up and down. Ryan did more like this dude and just pulled it back. And it gave this thing a ballistic trajectory and sent it flying right through an eight-foot-tall, four-foot-wide plate glass window. That was what we thought. <laughs> glass shattered and went flying across the lobby of the dorm under the door of the dorm parents. We scattered like cockroaches in the light, man. We run, you know, we're out of there. Except Ryan. He goes, this is totally true. He goes running down the hill. It was me. I did it. It was me. What are you thinking, man? Run. I learned what repentance looks like that day. When's the last time you went running toward brokenness going, that was me. I did that. And it runs so counter to who we are. It, it's so opposed to our nature. And yet that's what Jesus is trying to create in you. So what happens when the people of God get serious about repenting of the corruption in our relationships? Well, what happens is we get to experience the beautiful justice of God as we are lovingly authentic with one another. So how does that happen? Well, again, let's apply these three steps of repentance. First of all, this step of owning it. you got to confront your own corruption. I want to put an image in your mind. Some of you... <laughs> in your, I'm, I'm going to say some of you, but probably all of you is safer. At some point in your life, I've told a lie. And it just dogs you, right? It just follows you around. It's like you're constantly looking over your shoulder, waiting for, waiting for the truth to come out. You know what you need to do? Turn around look at it. Confront it head on. Just like Ryan, it was me. Part of owning this is just turning on it and look at I'm going to look you right in the eye. And you confront that in your life, right? The second step of contrition, kind of putting yourself in a position of repentance, is to confess. Like I told Larry in the story earlier, fess up. Say out loud what you did wrong. Now, I want, I want to draw a distinction. This is different than penance. Our Catholic friends practice that. I don't know that that's what Scripture calls us to. If you hurt somebody, go to them and admit it. Confess. It's hard really uncomfortable. You want to be free? That's what it takes. And then you get to enjoy something, and it's so beautiful. You, you get to experience this, this mercy of never having to remember what you say. Isn't that wonderful? If you always tell the truth, if you always use the power and influence you have to benefit other people and not yourself, you don't have to remember everything you say. It's beautiful. Think about what they ask you in court. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. When you repent of corruption, 
you can. Did you hear me this morning? To repent of deception and corruption, you've got to love the whole truth in Jesus. See, he can make beauty out of your deception and corruption when you learn to love the whole truth in Jesus. And this is seen when we contend for wholeness in our community through biblical justice and we unflinchingly tell the whole truth in love in our relationships. When you've cheated, when you've lied, when you've deceived, when you have abused power and influence to put yourself ahead, how do you repent from that? I will tell you, you run into the arms of the one who is true and the one who is just. And his name is Jesus. Will you do that today? The band is going to come back out and they're going to lead us in a song. And I'm going to ask you, if you've never made that decision to follow the Lord, that you've got an opportunity to do that this morning. If there's an area of corruption in your life, and maybe it's one of the ones we talked about, maybe it's something entirely different, I would ask for you to come forward and repent of it today. To receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. To surrender your life to Him. And say, all right, Jesus, it's, it's all you today. I want to experience this beauty of, of justice. I want to let go of the corruption in my life. If you've never made that decision, then today's your time. You come as we sing. Maybe you need someone to pray with you. Our decision counselors will be down front. If you need to have a conversation with someone about a situation in your life, maybe it's a little more complex than what we talked about, you go to the next step room under the yellow awning where our leaders are there, they'll talk with you. I'm going to ask you to stand with me and you respond as God leads you today.
Oh, oh, oh.